Welcome to For Instance Podcast, the tech podcast where we spin out endless supposals about cloud, AI, the edge, and more. We sift through current events, opine about what it means for practitioners and leaders, and interview industry observers about where different technologies are taking us. If you like digging into the story behind the story in tech, this podcast is for you. Hey folks, welcome to episode five of For Instance Podcast with Sarah Music and myself, Sarabji Johal. Sarah, how were the last two weeks, last yeah. 10, 12 days uh, of yeah. your work life? Um, I've seen a lot. Let's start with you. Yeah, it's been busy. There's a lot going on um, and it's nice to feel some of the fall temperatures kind of settling down a little bit of that crisp coming into the air. Uh, so, you know, in terms of what's going on, we can get right into announcements. One of the more intriguing announcements has to do with this expanded partnership between Oracle and uh, Microsoft Azure relating to Exadata. So, you know, Oracle as a dependency being one of the long time issues for, for enterprises in migrating to the cloud. And so now for Oracle to announce, you know, co-announce with Microsoft that they are going to host Exadata in, in Azure, it, that's a, it's a big deal. And it represents, I think, an inflection point for both companies. What do you think? Yeah, I'm ex-Oracle. I worked at Oracle Cloud uh, uh, Marketplace, uh, was bringing in those partners in. It, it, interesting, Oracle never gave full-fledged access to cloud providers, those top three cloud providers, to their portfolio, even though they had these relationships with Microsoft and um, there's a lot of Oracle running at AWS as well, but they will keep some crown jewels to themselves. And also the pricing was different if you, Pricing and support was different, right? So you couldn't take your licenses from on-prem to cloud like other players were allowing, allowing that, but the Oracle didn't allow that. So so they, they actually tried as much as they could to stop that, what I call the, the bleed, you know? So Oracle was bleeding market share, right? Uh, and Oracle's infrastructure service, uh, they have Gen 2 cloud now, um, much better architecturally, but their go-to-market strategy is still old style. You know, you have to buy a cloud in bulk. But having said yes. all that, I think this deal was big in many ways. Um, when Larry Allison said that, hey, this is the first time I'm in, I'm in Redmond. And that was that was the biggest statement of the whole year, I think, in tech. Like he never, bother to you know muck around with microsoft at that serious level and um now he he had he has to i think uh it's a uh, out of necessity if you will um i did the tweet i said like oh did oracles come to the power of public cloud or something like that and um there were a lot of comments on that you know people understand you know yeah uh, what i mean by that I, I think most most of them agreed with it the I I cited these these old other examples as well. Dell did the same thing, you know. Dell dragged their feet like, oh, you know, on-prem, on-prem, on-prem. Then later, okay, let, let me um, sing this hybrid song. Then later, say, oh, let me put our SKUs, our products in marketplace of AWS and Azure and Google Cloud, and so did HPE, even though they are cooking up their own 
cloud operating system if you are focused on on the stories. But um, yeah, it, I think it's a big deal. They, they, he said the, it's the same hardware with, yes. and software which will sit in Azure data centers. And it's not that easy. Only big, big players or big customers can afford that um luxury i know it's very hard to bring in anybody else's hardware into any cloud providers data center you have to have the space there racks the proximity of racks to your existing workloads matter there's so many factors you know once you're running a cloud shop mm -hmm. and and then you know the the issue of baking it into the orchestration and the hypervisor that it, it's uh it's an undertaking, but this is, this is, I think, a gem of an opportunity for Microsoft. It, you know, in, in the past, I think they, they have sort of been frenemies or, you know, competitive, of course, from a database perspective, but there are so many customers who have held out on moving to OCI, even though they've had an appetite to go to the cloud. And one of the places they have tended to go that complexion of customer is Microsoft Azure and so it is a, a better together story that I think will be really interesting to follow because it's a collision of two historically semi-competitive companies that now they've decided they can both make money so yeah Oracle yeah. Oracle has to continue to reinvent itself because it's so hard for folks to get themselves off of Exadata. But I think what they've realized is that there are enough organizations that have the appetite to do that, that they're going to, unless they make it easier for them to migrate to the cloud. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's an idea of a feature proximity, or I call feature proximity, not a future proximity, um, that when you are doing one thing and you want to do another thing um, as an enterprise, uh, like you're doing old style business intelligence bi now you want to do new style you know gen ai kind of you know business intelligence or intelligence in general where do you go to get those features where do you go to get that infrastructure and those libraries and that, those frameworks and, and those platforms right um if it is available to you sort of in the same store if you will or the same vendor in this case then you will go there, right? So the proximity of features matter a lot. And by Oracle sitting in AWS, not AWS in this case, in Azure, or even maybe in future AWS as well, they are already sitting there, but like more mm -hmm. well-entrenched uh, um, uh, integrations, if you will. It, it helps both vendors, I think. It's a win-win for both vendors. And it, it looked at surface, it looks very good for Microsoft. Uh, but I think it's very good for, for Oracle as well, um, because as you said, the reluctance to go to o OCI, uh, Oracle Cloud, you know, that it, it was there for many reasons because their their breadth of services is like very small. So the feature proximity of Oracle is very low. Actually, yes, I am working on some stuff to, to evaluate the vendors with a new set of metrics. The, the feature proximity will be one of them. And another one will be the, the skills gravity. You know, what, how much skills gravity a particular vendor has out there in the market? How many people are trained on their technology? That's another thing uh, which goes into 
how accessible their services are to the public in general. Are there, is there any freemium model kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the next lot there. What's next? Lot there. Is there's a lot there. There's economics, politics, and and drama. And um, Larry Ellison is um, funny at times. And by the way, along with that, Oracle Cloud World is happening this week. Today is the second day. Yesterday was was a key that was the keynote. Um, I I did take a listen to the keynote. It was kind of just um, normal Oracle Open World, Oracle Cloud um, World. They call it now. Sort of Larry Allison, typical, uh, very blunt, very to the point, uh, funny at times. So. Yeah, I didn't. Nothing stood out for me. They are. They said that we need to value partners. We need to simplify things. And power of Gen AI is admitted, you know, by Larry Allison. One of my main sort of uh, intake is from Twitter and, and LinkedIn. You know, that's where I read most of my latest news. What's happening out there? You know, like who's doing what? You know, um, and they. Yeah, Oracle doesn't play well with the social media savvy analysts, if you will. It's kind of behind the scenes um, uh, kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. It it, it it's uh, it's just happening. I think it's just can't call it blah, but it's their important vendor. But at the same time, not very uh, buzzworthy sort of news coming out so far. So. Yeah. Understood. Moving on to the the ARM IPO, what's your take? Um, it was interesting pop on the on the first day, and then kind of at the end it was twelve percent up or something like that. And but yeah, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, up twenty five percent I think midday, and then it settled down a little bit. Uh, yeah. I ARM's going to be a blast to follow, and some of their anchor investors are are also intriguing in terms of the strategic alignments they obviously see with ARM. And for SoftBank to have taken ARM public again, you know, I, I think some of that from a cash perspective, you know, obviously there was a hope that it would do well because they needed, they needed the money. But ARM strategically as, as an architecture, as a player in the broader semiconductor ecosystem, I think it's going to have a long play of success. Their, their challenge is going to be to monetize their strategic value. They historically have struggled with that a little bit because if you think about it, you know, the, the designs that are then leveraged in everything from commoditized you know, household appliances to really sophisticated phones, like, you know, iPhones and, and things like that, the the margin, the residuals they get on each individualized sold unit is really, really small. Oh, but yeah. the tech is uh, quite important. And uh, part of the reason it's important is because it's lean. And there's a reason for that in, in the way it was uh, architected, but two factors, they're gonna, their continued success, which I would say is almost guaranteed strategically, but also if they're able to monetize, further monetize how they 
license their designs. And price increases are almost never popular. So that's going to be a tough one, you know, potentially for a really faithful adherence to ARM to follow. But I think that's what they're going to have to do um, unless they unless they come up with something new that sits outside of their current wheelhouse today. What do you think, Sarbjeet? Yeah, I, I had a good discussion with um, somebody from semiconductor industry, like a in this this gentleman is in in their industry for the last uh, uh, thirty years almost. Right, so he sold a company to Cisco. They are trying to launch another one, doing chiplets now. So he told me that this ARM guys don't let. He and a couple of other people also told me. The ARM designs are good, you know, their IP is good, that you're using their IP to cook up your stuff, but they don't let you customize it. They don't they don't want you to alter that stuff. And and they they resist to the nth degree. Of course, the bigger the hammer, more you bend kind of thing. So if you're a big enough customer of theirs like AWS or or Apple, they they will listen to you more. They will let you do more like um custom stuff. But in, in general, they don't. So that is a big negative, according to him and a few other folks. And that's one thing. And the second is, as you said, margins and the way their sort of go-to-market strategy is, the way they price things and the way they charge. But the but on the plus side, I think the volume, the, the amount of wafer under ARM is much bigger number than amount of wafer. I mean, that's a one way to measure your strength, right? So how much wafer mm -hmm. is being cooked with your And that's not going to shrink. Yeah. That's, that's going to expand, actually. So yeah, the, yeah. it's a volume business. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think um, we, we will see, because it depends on how the client market, the sort of end-user computer market grows, because that's a relatively untapped market for ARM. It, with the very, very notable exception of the Apple M chips, but uh, end user computers are are viewed as more or less a saturated market. But for ARM themselves, Apple's the only one who's doing something like that right now. Um, yeah. And so is, are there, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, are there other opportunities for them out there? I tend to think possibly but they're you know it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they can hook anything yeah. else up mm -hmm. true um their main strength is mobile you know ma major yes. revenue sources mobile data center revenue is much smaller but they want to make that bigger the two other factors are one is the software stack so you can, there are rumors, uh, and rightly so, I think they need to do this anyways, that they ARM will be putting out the GPU designs, right? So GPU-like computing, if you will, if not GPU as like um, parity-wise, right? So like high-performance computing designs, they will put it out there, their IP. That, that's, that's one thing. And in that context, I think having a software layer, just CUDA, like just like CUDA from uh, NVIDIA, they need that. Intel needs that layer too. You know, you can go open source route, but that's that doesn't do that well for you as a as a, a hardware vendor. 
the open source um, standards emerging, there are a couple colliding as well. Then Intel having FPGA, CUDA from NVIDIA. So I think whoever, what I'm trying to say is whoever can, can entice the developers to cook stuff with their, their libraries, their ease of use has to be there. Uh, a lot of education has to be put out there. I usually say that to outcompete your competition, you have to out-educate the market. So you have to focus a lot more on developers and, and the usability of your chips through those software layers. I think that is that can come back by um, uh, ARM as well. Yeah, I want to yeah kind of touch on something that you said a little bit earlier before we leave off on this one. So one of the one of the big questions in the market is will ARM be able to take advantage of some of the tailwinds from an AI perspective and uh, kind of to your broader point, both about developers, because AI is going to be one of the chief things that they're interested in. And, you know, from, from a data center perspective, um, it's important to note from an architecture standpoint that ARM is, is the way it runs is meant to be pretty lean. And so from the standpoint of parallel instructions, where you're you're pumping through tons of, so, you know, for instance, you have one piece of data and you're looking to perform multiple operations on it at the same time, or you have the same operation and you want to do it on tons and tons of different chunks of data. You know, you have a massive data set. Those are not functions that ARM tends to do very well. And so I think unless they come up with a different variation of what they're currently doing, you know, and that was by, that was by design. It's the, the risk, you know, the risk being the direction that they went. Bonus five. From yeah. Target. yeah. Um, That's why I was trying to remember earlier. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't think that the AI is going to make much of a difference for them, at least in the near term, but. Yeah, and ARM not having any foundry, you know, they are just IP business, if you will. Um, going, tying that to the Intel Innovation uh, Summit, Intel Innovation happening, event happening in San Jose as we speak, um, um, that keynote from yesterday uh, from Pat Kalsinger uh, was great. He did push-ups on the main stage. That was interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, roadmap related information pumping up the crowd, and uh, yeah, I, I I liked what I what I saw, and I was tweeting all day yesterday about that, and watched the whole keynote again last night. Interesting stuff coming down the pike from from uh, Intel, um, and they're relevant for many reasons, mainly because U.S. wants to be sovereign and the chip making, uh, not just designing, but in making. So we need our own native foundry, <laughs> if I can call that, uh, from US side. You know, we are reliant on TSMC from Taiwan and um, other vendors from other countries mainly. And we have two other small foundries, but they're very negligible. IBM has one and there's uh, another one. What do you think about the Intel innovation happening? Yes. 
they they it was dense yesterday even for somebody who follows Intel's progress really closely it was it was dense and it was quiet in the room relatively quiet if you listen and you know I was talking to a few folks who I know were there and they were saying that there was a, maybe a little bit of a shock and awe component it was just a lot to take in and so you had to you know pay attention there wasn't a lot of time for hoop loss, so to speak, because, and I think this was intentional, just blazing through uh, information. But I think aside from what was actually announced, the most important factor that Intel alluded to was that things that they've alluded to prior, um, previously, or that they officially announced yesterday are on track. So in other words, the five nodes in four years is on track. Emerald Rapids, you know, the data center CPU is going to be re released in Q4. That's on track. Granite Rapids um, and Sierra Forest, which are going to follow it. Um, Sierra Forest being the efficiency core, uh, which is, you know, really going to pack a punch with up to 288 CPUs. Like that's pretty, pretty jaw dropping. You know, all of that's great. But to be able to say that it's on track, I think, is really important for Intel, given some of the some of the recent history there. I also think what they're talking about, the era of the AI PC with Meteor Lake, the first truly AI-enabled client chip, being able to do large language learning work locally um, so that it doesn't have to make a, a round trip, so to speak, to the cloud and then you know ultimately the the results of which you can ship to the cloud and you know doing generative ai work image work all that stuff locally that that's could be really interesting in terms of what enterprises end up doing with with workstations depending on the nature of the work of some of their some of their workers so you know and there was much more besides in terms of what was talked about but those those were the highlights yeah I, uh, yeah I think you're spot on the the highlights you mentioned those were big ones but I think these other three are also very important one is the developer cloud yes. right but but I I cringed when um Pat said that we are giving it free for one week I'm like one week like who does that right so one week is nothing nobody can do any good experiment especially using gen ai stuff in one week you need at least three months you know maybe a year so i don't know maybe intel needs to um, rethink that freemium sort of um, option but that that's was a, a fair that's point. a great step though huh yeah i said i think that's a fair point i will say with some of the out-of-the-box bottles that you can get you know from hugging face and other places it only takes a few hours to begin to get to work from an inferencing perspective. Yeah. So okay. it, I do think it depends on what you're, what you're looking to do. Um, you know, because at that point you're really using your, your company's data to fine tune as opposed to building from scratch. Cause that's, what's going to take you three, six months a year. Oh. Um, so, yeah. uh, but I agree. It really, uh, yeah. A, a, a week what, what, what will you do a, after a week? What will you do? Yeah. Like, what's your 
next thing to do after a week. No, 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 a week is not enough. There's no excuse for that. Even though it's training for a few hours, like that means you you want people to do the, all the other homework somewhere else using AMD or what? You know, I don't know. Not not good. So Edge, um, Edge story was great. Actually, what how um, Pat described Edge and how, how he sort of the narrative around Edge was very, I think, clever and little edgy, pushy kind of in many ways that we'll do a lot more inference at Edge and training at Edge as well. But that was um, well done, by the way, uh, um, whoever cooked up those slides and that narrative. And the, I think the most important was the software platform layer. We were just talking about CUDA equivalent. So um, that uh, was mentioned the last thing in, in, in his uh, sort of uh, keynote. But I think that's one of the most important aspects and um, they they better focus there. They are leveraging a more like ecosystem approach and open source um, plugins as well. Uh, and this, by the way, chiplet, um, he showed the chiplet as well, um, three nanometer uh, chiplet mm -hmm. coming on the bike. And that was, um, that was great, you know? So yeah, quite a few things. I mean, like yeah. anybody who is listening, uh, please watch that keynote, draw your own conclusions. And um, and Pat Moorhead is known for for his coverage in this area. He was there. Um, uh, so listen to his talks. And he actually, he's, he focuses mainly on semiconductors. You know, he specializes in that. That's that. Uh, what's the next thing? Vegas. Let's talk about Vegas got hacked. Yes. So, uh, yeah, a lot, uh, going on in Vegas. So, uh, MGM and, uh, Caesars both were hacked. You know, it seems to be a concentrated effort to extract money out of the very lucrative, uh, casinos in Las Vegas and MGM has, uh, been sort of bludgeoned by by these hacks and uh caesars ended up buckling a little bit they're they're they it seems like they may have uh, negotiated down the original ransom and yeah. so they ended up forking over 15 million which you know i don't care who you are that's not a small amount yeah. of money but you know they obviously waited out and decided okay we're we're just gonna bite the bullet on this one ngm did not and so they are they you know they were losing the last figure i read was about seven million a day in lost revenues so yeah cyber cyber security and we all know this but it's the latest example of how important it is it is super important actually uh, it, it, the pictures coming out of um, in media from las vegas like people getting stuck not they are not able to check in their room keys not will not work. The lights were off, and uh, slot machines are not working. You know, it, it, you can just imagine being in a casino and and there, there's a mess. You know, like it, it's not one casino. Actually, they have many properties. MGM is a yes. one big player, international player in the you know gambling space, if you will. <laughs> so yeah, gamblers got gambled. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> like they the, milk money the from people like they, they milk money from all these poor people almost you know who are trying to win 
and they get the money you know they have this rate at what they operate these casinos like they get like um seven eight percent every time but um it was their time to pay now i guess to bad guys moving on just staying within the same theme the mandiant um annual event is happening in las vegas the cube is there i was listening to some of the talks very interesting talks uh, on the on, in security space and how they're approaching it and how they are they're working with other ecosystem they have a lot of intelligence and they they are part of google now so that uh anybody who's security buff listening listening they should look at those talks and uh what mandian is doing um the CrowdStrike event is happening as well this week um yeah there's so many events happening this week um, yeah this is a busy week oh the irony of being a mandiant person in las vegas during <laughs> all of this it is it is something else <laughs> oh yes they actually mentioned those uh hacks um and the role of government and the regulations and the investment going into uh, cybersecurity and um, um yeah great um dialogues there well-informed people you know in this from this space you know just yeah tune in it's important aspect of our digital world right the security of our mm -hmm. digital assets instacart um ipo let's talk very briefly about it it doesn't pertain to like like our tech in general but it's a tech company um it's a you know a shell no not a shell company it's a uh, it's like uber of you know delivery if you will so they went public uh, at the valuation one fourth of what they were valued at during their private round so very shrunk down um ipo but they did okay yeah i think it's since you know there are services companies that experienced a bonanza during the pandemic and instacart was one of them i i actually happened to be somebody who started using it a little more toward toward the tail end of the pandemic and and have continued to uh just because it, you know on the occasion that i just can't go into the store it helps a lot to be able to just whip through and build a shopping cart having said that you know there has been a rebalancing so i do attribute it uh, a, a bit to that another aspect is and this is something that will affect the enterprise, but to what extent I think remains to be seen when you're dealing with sort of more traditional blue chip American brands, but millennial uh, purchasing behaviors has ch have changed as the pricing models for some of these companies have changed because the more expensive you make it, the more likely you are to protect your profit margin. But where nobody exactly knows where the tipping point is, where you've you've eclipsed the tolerance of yeah, some of your core users and i do think that for some of these services they've gotten a little expensive and there's been a lot of journalism about that sort of the yeah the lifestyles I, and that the reality is coming home to roost <laughs> but yeah what do you think yeah the money is evaporating actually the money is more expensive the price mm -hmm. elasticity of um that's a, that's what we name it as economists right price elasticity so when when the the price goes up how much it affects a demand 
you know, price elasticity of like necessities is very low, but a price elasticity of convenience is high. So if the price goes up, like people say, oh, I don't want this, you know, so that's there. And also the student loan crisis also plays into this as well. Um, and government will be, um, you know, forgiving less and less loans and throwing more, less and less money at public going forward, you know. And I have one last thing before I give you um, some time to talk about the iPhone and China and then Qualcomm's deal with Apple. Um, the the last thing, uh, oh yeah, uh, the AWS um, developer tour, bus tour is happening in Europe. Interesting stuff. They do a lot of uh, creative, sometimes it looks like shenanigans, but it's, it is actually, it, it does work, you know, like people get pumped up and you go to, from city to city in a bus and developers get together and then, yes. you know, creating that um, skills gravity for AWS stack, they do a very good job of that. They're, that's happening. And then I went to Gen AI Day in San Francisco, uh, uh, AWS did that. So I went to AWS office of San Francisco. There were, I don't know, like 150 people or so. A very focused uh, crowd on AI and um, people from OpenAI. A uh, couple of people were there. A uh, couple of people from, uh, actually the best uh, presentation was from um, Facebook. Um, gentleman and he actually explained the llama models and all these cookbooks and you know how how we can uh, um, make things better going forward I mean, I mean it was amazing to see and to hear from people that that what facebook is doing is is amazing in in uh, putting the models their models out there for open source consumption and um, the the way they train it, the number of uh, parameters they they have, and what they're going to do in future for metaverse, it's multimodal actually uh, models, not single mode, if you will. Um, so they, they they handle text, they handle the the video, the pictures, the voice, and everything they they have, they can handle. You know, you throw anything at it, it works. So that was amazing, and I had interesting. Uh, sort of quick dialogue with uh, the gentleman from Facebook. And my question was like, hey, tell us, the, do some myth busting around. Need for compute during inference versus during training. My, th my theory is knowing what I know and I've developed a lot of systems out there, some inference will be more compute intensive than other. And some inference can be even more more compute intensive than the training itself, depending upon what model it is, right? No, I'm not talking about large language models, but models you will cook up as an enterprise. So there's a there's a concept of recursive inference. So some inference will be recursive, like you will use a lot more compute to come up with the results, right? In during the inference, not during the training. So that was, um, then, then he, he answered that, he said, yes, that's true. To a certain extent, but still, he he thinks he thought that the training will take a lot more compute, and and then he said the inference, the the optimization of inference is the latest um, area of innovation, and that's where a lot of people are focused. You know, just just keep an eye on there, on that area. Like inference has to be cheaper, 
made cheaper, better, lean. I think that's huge. When you build a model, that is a fenced off defined interaction with the data. You are you are looking to build something and there is a point at which you're finished. Once you've once you've built the model, you're going to be looking to crank crank through. So I think that focus on optimizing inferences needed. Uh, I, and as companies begin to finish building their models, it's going to become super important in the cloud in particular. I think that there's a lot of debate on the need for GPU during inference versus the, if, if good enough CPUs can do that and stuff like that. The last thing I think we want to talk about was the, the iPhone ban for government workers in China. And also, along with that, the Qualcomm's de deal with Apple for four more years. Mm -hmm. The floor is yeah. yours. You, you, yeah, you okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, kind of going back to Armin, this brings us full circle in terms of where we were talking about toward the top of uh, the episode. You know, Qualcomm's extended deal with Apple benefits Arm as well, uh, because, of course, the IP... For I, you know, for for iPhone processors comes from ARM. So that's gonna be, you know, that is gonna be beneficial to ARM. But I, you know, obviously from a Qualcomm perspective, really interesting. But we're at the same time to add to this imbroglio, seeing China uh restrict access to iPhones for government workers. They're not going to be able to carry them anymore. And in, in the abstract, is the fact that that market of government workers in China cataclysmic? No, but there are a lot of big implications attached is the way I read it. The arm, I think China ban, you know, we're banning, US is banning China from getting the latest and greatest chips or later technology, right? Uh, the basis is uh, national security mainly, but hidden under that is also they want to keep them under check, you know, like uh, from AI in general, you know, um, they don't want them to um, lead, if you will. And um, they actually um, had China launch their own phone. Well, I think Huawei was did that. Did that. I mean, they had a, a seven nanometer chip, I guess. Or was it five? I think a five or so. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, yeah for YY. I think it's five. It's like two generations behind. Uh, Apple has three now, right? So they're yeah, they're they're still way behind. So I think it is it, it, it's good for that ban. It's good for ARM as well. Nobody is stopping China from getting ARM designs and cooking up their own own chips as well. So um, there's a lot lot of moving parts actually. You know. Um, some bands are good for some companies and bad for others. And four years of more business from Apple for uh, Qualcomm is good. But then what happens after four years? I think about mm -hmm. 80 to 20% of their revenue comes from uh, Apple. Um, actually, I learned about this a lot more about this world. Um, I went to Mobile World Congress <laughs> in Barcelona this year. And uh, they showed us... Uh, uh, I was, I, I, Ericsson gave us a tour of their, like, you know, what's coming down the pike in the next five to seven years. It was crazy stuff. And they showed us how the thing works. And like, I mean, I was like, are there radios in the 
for iPhone? Yes, there's radio in the iPhone. That's what converts our voice data into radio waves, which can go to the tower. That's how it works. Amazing stuff. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for your help. Thanks for engaging with us from time to time. And we want more engagement from you, actually. When you listen, please let us know how we're doing. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarbjeet. Thanks for listening to For Instance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. When we're not recording, you can find Sarbjeet reacting to and discussing current enterprise tech news on Twitter or X. His handle is at Sarbjeet Joal. And you can find me, Sarah Music, on LinkedIn, interacting with tech news or occasionally posting a literature quote. We welcome your feedback and we'll see you next time.